Savior, he can move the mountains. Amen. My God is mighty to save. Amen. Amen. Forever author of our salvation. Amen. Amen. He rose and conquered the grave. Saints, our Savior has conquered the grave and conquered death. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could gather, that we could proclaim that you have conquered the grave, that we stand here before you, Lord, because you have propped us up on the assurance of our salvation for you and eternity for all of time, forever, Lord. We stand here assembled as the saints, Lord, not tiresome, not weary, but most assuredly wanting to sing these words with fervency and zeal, that you are worthy to be praised. Father, I am unworthy. Lord, I am weak and unable, but you are worthy you are able to accomplish. And so we are encouraged this morning, Lord, as we sing your praises. We're encouraged to know that you will stand resolute, never crumbling, never deteriorating, never to fall, Lord, but always to stand. And Lord, you have gathered us able to stand and to never fall. Lord, we pray that... uh, as the word is proclaimed this morning, that it is true and right and rightly divided. But Lord, it is able to correct and to teach. And Lord, I am of most needed to hear your word this morning. So just minister to me, Lord, as I bring the word. Minister to my heart and my soul that I may be encouraged that I may be pushed to be more resolute with the imperatives given in your word, that your commands I would love, that I would treasure the things that we look at this morning and that we read. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Ken hasn't gained weight. It's me. It's someone different. Um, I'm here this morning. I take it's a great privilege to be in front of you this morning to share from the Word of God. Um, this will be an occasional sermon. It's not following Ken's progression. I think Ken, you'd be in Genesis, right? Or, but this will be an occasional sermon uh, this morning. So I would invite, uh, like to invite all of you to open to the Book of Proverbs. I'm hopeful that each one of us finds our time in this text useful fulfilling, and necessary as we glorify God in its proclamation. Now, Proverbs is a wonderful book of the Bible. Uh, One can read it and read it and read it and still find it immensely practical and absolutely profitable. For in this book, we have the wisdom of Christ, that which proves valuable as applied in Scripture, or as applied in practice. Proverbs is a good book for practice. Its applications in wisdom and truth are absolutely perceptible, and we would be all the better to gain this wisdom. Like most sayings in this book of Proverbs, we have a very plain and practical example here in the 24th chapter. Wisdom, and we can say godly wisdom, recognizes the same practical, common-sense principles that our day-to-day activities and business dealings require. And upon the very rising of the sun, what we set out to do, conversely, or conversely not to do, 
mirrors the condition and the constitution of our very own souls. So turn with me now to Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34, and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Verse 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Behold, if we have a keen or observant eye, and if we are to receive instruction, then decidedly there is nothing in all of creation which would not afford us a useful lesson along the lines of the Christian life. That is to say, if we would just open up our eyes and ears, we can learn something. We can learn from what we see, we can learn from what we hear, from what is evil, and even from what is good. To be sure, that is the mark of true wisdom, to learn from everything and anything that might come within our reach. Here in this passage, Solomon has given a good example in this respect. He saw a vineyard that had been shamefully neglected, and instead of turning his head away to say, ah, that's just another eyesore along the street. That's unworthy of my time or my consideration. We have instead our author setting himself to consider it well and to derive instruction from it. I am confident then this day it will be profitable for us as well. Now in our time, it is easy enough to pass by any number of poorly cultivated grounds or unkept industries. One might even say the sluggard's garden is more common today than uncommon. There is more evidence in our world I would submit for the lazy rather than the diligent. Let us then take up this occasion to speak of a vineyard that we should all seek to cultivate. A vineyard that should have on display the diligent. A vineyard where the plight of neglect does its worst. This vineyard is the vineyard of the soul. Brothers and sisters, the soul is pictured here in the vineyard of the sloth. And like this vineyard, we too have all become familiar with neglect. The proverb and the attending picture cause us to consider two things this morning. Number one, this vineyard is uncultivated. And secondly, this vineyard is unprotected. First point this morning, the garden unattended. The man possesses this common vineyard, and he is called to procure good plants for it, to water it regularly, and to weed it carefully, in order that it would bring forth fruits of increase. And we are to have the same labor and care for our own souls, that we should fill it with the things of heaven, that we should water it with prayer, and seek to have it nourished with the word of God. We should be occupied with the tasks of pulling out the thorns and the weeds that come forth. 
whereby the growth of every good plant is thus preserved. But we do not have a reason to ponder that most, if not all of us sitting in this church have given a nod to the weeds, that we are comfortable in winking to the nettles, that we have proven ourselves slothful and void of understanding in our Christian life. Have we not been remiss in our attention to our soul? Have not our fruits been more akin to wild grapes or to the grapes of Sodom? Church, we are plagued with unbelief, pride, anger, envy, malice, covetousness, impurity, and 10,000 other noxious weeds springing up to grow within us. Yes, church, we are the sloth, the sluggard. Like the vineyard owner in this proverb, we are not prone to action. In fact, our flesh flinches at the point of work. Our flesh flinches at suffering. And even if we gird up enough gumption to draw a hand across our faces, to slap ourselves silly, the conviction is temporary. What is required of the vineyard owner here is work, hard work. What is required of us is work, hard work. It is costly. And little regard is taken unto account for such a cost. Are we not greatly affected when we consider the work of Christ and his work for us? We begrudgingly would exercise for him. We'd hardly move an inch. Meanwhile, our Lord is filled with the absorbing interest of his work for us. What we have been satisfied to let decay, Christ has accomplished. It is obvious from the condition of the sluggard's garden that is that he at one point had stopped acting and started in with the excuses. His weeds and his walls are not the result of duty and work, but of neglect. The easy road is generally the wrong one. <coughs> and such is the case of this gardener. This man was more comfortable in his leisure than intending to the vineyard. The act of removing himself from the presence of work was a type of work indeed. The lazy man will move about and disturb the area about him. But it is a turning from one direction to the other and then back again. Like a door fixed to its hinges, the sloth simply moves back and forth back and forth and can do no other. This sta stationary action is not an illness. It is not a sickness. It is a sin. The sloth would love nothing more than to hear the creaks of his own hinges, only to say, well, I will probably oil those someday. Christian, we would love nothing more than to hear the creaks of our own souls, only to say, well, I'll get involved with that someday. Yeah, I'm thinking in a few months I'll have some time to work on that. Or I'd like to address that, but you know, my life's, boy, my life's pretty busy right now. Got a lot going on. This squeal of sin and comfort with neglect is why our lives are filled with weeds. 
is why we can often offer nothing appealing to a dying world. The world is full of its own aggravating squeaky hinges and shambled gardens. It needs not us to contribute. We can either have flowers and fruits, or we can have thorns and nettles. It is not enough to possess, but we must increase. We note that even the finest offerings and possessions given to us by God may be wasted. They could be wasted in opportunity. They could be wasted in talent. They could be wasted in influence. And we also need to note that wickedness and sin always move in the, in the direction of destruction. Consider how plants, even in this neglected garden, yet they're still there, right? These plants are still in the garden. They remain there. Now, these plants, whether by talent or opportunity, were placed in the garden before weeds and thorns, and they were planted to yield its glorious fruit and function. However, now, covered under the deterioration, the plants remain, yet not in their cared form. These plants have lost their robustness, their color, their shape, and they fall to the wilting that draws them from a cultivated beauty. They will, without care, lose all of their distinction, lose all of their character, and they will lose all of their value. And in this garden scene, the once lush and healthy plots of beauty and fruitfulness have now been run over by a more wild and less worthy entity in the weed. And the lesson here is an easy one, that a man devoid of energy, devoid of understanding, will descend into ruin and decay, and he will be found in shameful misery, his own testimony to the inevitable result of foolishness and slothfulness. Oh, that we would pine for a cultivated soul. We need not even to look very far to consider the implications given in this warning, right? If we go into the workplace of a sloth, would we not find disorder and disarray among the task of labor? Would it not be wrought with carelessness, a love of pleasure and self-indulgence hoisted higher than the mundane labors at hand? How about the home? What if we go into the sloth of the home? Would we not find the home unattended to? His children rudderless? His children chaotic? Making, maybe making appeal just to get back to where they started with no attention for going forward or advancement? A home marked by the enterprise of throwing away opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. How about the church? What if we go into uh, the church of the sloth? Would we not find an ineffective lot, distracted by fruitless burdens, that she would scarcely gaze out the window to see weed and thorn importing its destruction? Yet for the sloth to exercise dominion and initiate the task to bring order is one of inertia. He would rather go hungry then lift his hand up to his mouth to eat. Church, have we gotten tired of lifting our hands to our mouths to eat? A stagnant soul is a riotless soul. It doesn't burden you. Brothers and sisters, the sloth, the sluggard, the lazy is not becoming extinct. He is everywhere, 
And everywhere he is, the process of deterioration and decay has begun, and it needs to be checked. It is not enough, saints, that we once believed and obeyed for a time. It is not enough that we once waged open war against evil and ardently pursued that which is good. If we have settled down into a quiet and easy enjoyment of church and the shared unity of Christ, if we are not watchful and diligent, resolute and untiring, if we cannot work under any and all conditions, if we shrink from every call to do something for God and man, or we start to calculate how little we can do instead of how much, if we make no sacrifice for the sake of truth and righteousness or mourn and complain over every sacrifice we are compelled to make, if we stop to strive vigorously with clear and firm determination against the evil forces and inclinations by which we are constantly confronted, if we no longer care to learn any new truth that may be unearthed from God's holy word, if instead of recognizing and rejoicing in any new aspect of duty in our home, any new form of service in the church or society at large, if we are growing lazy or indifferent, even in the things we once loved, slothfulness is beginning to eat into our heart, our faith, our life, and the good plants of the soul are beginning to deteriorate and decay. They are losing their distinction, they are losing their character and their value. If nothing less will get us excited, let us remember that by mere indolence, laziness, mere neglect, merely being quiet and at ease, merely failure to grow and make increase to ourselves, is to sink towards evil. Is to sink towards evil, but from which we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and it will no longer have its power over us. We will not be shaken. We will not ignore the work we are called to. But if this is for you, what you're hearing this morning, another temporary conviction, something you hear for an hour and leave and forget, I can assure you of this. You will revert to your inferior state. You will take your place among the weeds. And to revert to that is only the first step towards sinking. You will go lower, and you will go more helpless, more hopeless. A little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little more folding of the hands to rest, when they ought to be lifted up for the labor, which is prayer and all things submitted to Christ. It is by little procrastinations that men ruin their souls. They have no intention to delay for years, or a few days, or a few weeks, or a few months. Maybe that'll bring more convenient time, maybe a more convenient season. Tomorrow, they say, they will attend to these serious things. But right now, it's so busy, it's really not the right time. It's pretty altogether unsuitable, really. And they beg to be excused. The sloth begs to be excused. The day will come when it will be too late. It will be too late to plow the field. Cold will have set in. You will not be able to sow the seed. It will be too late to repent and believe. Remember the condition of the garden of your soul. The work is difficult. 
The times are bad. Are you convinced to rise up, you sluggard? Let your father's voice be instantly heard now. Son, go to work today in the vineyard. Start pruning. Do you not see that it's overgrown with thorns? Look out there. Don't complain, but decide. Not pray only, but strive. Always connect privilege with practice. Church, you're privileged. You have the opportunities. Put it into practice. Aim at every active exercise that builds you up in the faith. Danger is afoot. In church, we need incessant watchfulness. We need incessant activity. A sleepy person, one who intends to have a well-watered garden and a pruned garden, passing around the fruits of his labor, will most certainly allow his soul to relapse to its former wilderness state, kicking open the door to temptation and essential appetite. But what if you don't care? What if you don't agree with what I'm saying, what scripture's showing us this morning? What if you're happy to recline? Then sleep on. Sleep on, then you shut both your eyes, and you shut your ears to any disturbance. Nothing is done or attempted for God, for your own soul, or for your fellow believers. Your vineyard is left open. All your good purposes are the stone wall that's broken down. Satan can come and go as he pleases. Point number two this morning, the vineyard is unprotected. But we have been careful to protect our souls. Like the lazy one, we can search and find one and more likely more, several voids open in our walls to the advancement of our enemies and to temptation. It is a sad picture indeed, and one I pray we are doubly attentive to. What shall I say then about walls? May I submit the following? Proverbs 18, verses 10 and 11 read, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. Let's look at these two fortresses. We have a strong tower, and we have a strong city. So we have the one being lifted up from danger on the account of the Lord. And then we have one priding himself to be high above any danger under the wraps of his own imagination. Consider these two fortresses in contrast. The strong tower, the name of the Lord, with all its depth, all its splendor, all its inexhaustible power and infinite defense on the one hand, and the rich man's wealth on the other. It is, a, it is as if the author is saying here, yes, two forts. The one is supposed to be Gibraltar, immovable, unsinkable, impenetrable. The other would be more akin to, let's call it a fancifully painted castle propped up on a stage like a flimsy canvas. You could put your foot through this canvas whenever, whensoever you chose to make your thrust. Behind this castle-like portraiture, there's nothingness simply conjured up with one's own imagination. 
the name of the Lord, that very name, are all the deeds which he has accomplished. Every act of power, every morsel of wisdom, of tenderness, of grace. Indeed, the Lord does not sit on a precarious throne, saints. The name of the Lord proclaims that he is self-evident, and as he is self-evident, he is eternal, and as he is eternal, he is changeless. The Lord, eternal, self-evident, and changeless, and perfect in all the qualities by which he makes himself known. So, saints, surely we can say with confidence that he is a strong tower, and the righteous will run to it. Now let us look at the city built with rich man's wealth. People often use their imaginations in very strange ways and certainly have made for themselves an invisible refuge for defense and strength and will go so far as to christen this imaginary conjuring a strong city. Like a crazed lunatic running in circles outside, all the while believing that he's ensconced in the halls of a castle. Or how about the tribe of warriors banded down behind a little turf wall? Or a band of children peering out from behind a handful of sticks propped forth behind the church? Decidedly firm in their position of defense. By whatever fodder, garbage, or feeble means people are willing to throw together, this is their defense. And these fortifications have not throughout history and up until the present been able to stand. It is difficult for one to have them, though, and not trust them. We are all tempted to make a defense of the things that we can see, the things that we can handle, the things that are tangible. Is it not strange, is it not sad that most of us just turn the truth around and suppose that the real and tangible defense is the imaginary and that the imaginary one is the real? How many are there in this church who, if they spoke out of their deepest convictions, would say, Oh, yeah, 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 the promises of God, those are good. I would rather have the money. I suppose that I may trust it will provide bread and water. I'm not worried yet. God will give me that. But I would rather have a good, solid balance at the bank or in the safe. How many of you would rather honestly and at the bottom of your hearts have that than God's word for your defense? How many of you think that to trust in a living God is but grasping at a very airy and slippery kind of agency? And that the real solid defense is the defense made of the things that you can see or touch. Church, it is exactly the opposite way. Turn it clean round and you get the truth. The wispy shadows are the material things that you can see and handle. And they're about as capable to ward off the blows of the enemy as a soap bubble. The real is the unseen beyond the things that are. The triune God is, in his boundless and absolute being, our only defense. Moreover, the way in which somebody makes this world a defense may teach you a lesson as how you can make God your defense. So how does one make this world their defense? By trusting to it, right? He that says to his wealth, or he that appeals to his own equity, however debased and anti-God that might be. He that says to his alliances with the wicked, hey, hey, you are my confidence. They have made that their fortress. 
But that is how you will make God your fortress, by trusting in him. The very same resolve, the very same act of mind, heart, and will may be turned either upwards or downwards as you can turn the beam of a flashlight in any direction you please. Right? Direct this beam down to the earth, and you trust in the uncertainty of this world and its imaginations. You flash it heavenwards, and you trust in the living God. We have precious little time in deciding how to gain protection. The proverb here highlights the idea of eager haste and getting oneself to the shelter. As when an invading army comes into a country, all would hurry into a fortified place. There would be no dawdling. But every, with every muscle strained, men would run into the stronghold, counting until every precious family member and brethren were inside its walls. No matter how rough the road or how overpowering the heat, there was no time to stop to gather the flowers or, or even pick up the diamonds on the road. When a moment's delay might mean the enemy's sword in your heart. This is of supreme importance, for I am concerned about those that may be still admiring the flowers and detained by the diamonds. The idolatrous, idolatrous and the slothful are unprotected. Your idolatry, brothers and sisters, my idolatry is busy painting that cardboard castle on the theater's stage. Idolatry has convinced us to further tighten the grip on what sets right beside us. Idolatry has won over our imaginations, dulled our senses, and sold you a memorial brick from the strong city with love. Idolatry is making sure you never slide that thorny weed aside to reveal the gaping hole in the flimsy cardboard. Sorry, boys. Walls like war wall, stand no chance. The imagination gives birth to a city and invites idolatry to sit at its unicorn table. People inhabit the city because, frankly, they like unicorn tables and idolatry. The promise of the flesh and rebellion are the bricks, slowly stacked ever higher and higher, until finally the name of the Lord draws out a weary citizen of the strong city, calling them to the strong tower. And upon this man's departure from the city, bumps into one of those bricks, instantly realizing that they were hollow all along. Praise be to God for this salvific work. Now recognizing that in Jesus Christ, who declares the name of the Lord our hiding place, we shelter ourselves in him, and we rest secure. One of the words by which the Old Testament expresses trust means literally to flee to a refuge. The Old Testament trust is the New Testament faith. And so we run into this sure hiding place, the strong fortress, the name of the Lord, when we commit ourselves to Christ and put our trust in him as our defense. So my question to you is this. Have you fled idolatry and the longing to grasp things solid for a refuge in the Savior in whom God has set his name? 
Would you walk about among the defenses of God, repeating the words of the psalmist? The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength and whom I will trust, my buckler, my horn of my salvation, my high tower. If you have, then because you have made the Lord your refuge, there shall no evil befall you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The church now fortified is not merely safe. It is more accurately described and rendered as is set aloft. It reminds us of the psalm which gives this exact thought when it reads, I will set him on high because he has known my name. The once castaway, the once idolater, the once slothful are now taken within the safe walls of the strong tower. They are carried high up on the ramparts. They're able now to look down upon their pursuer, down upon the enemies, down upon the confused, and far beyond the reaches of their arrows. To stand upon this height of that tower on this wall is to stand above the height at which temptation flies. Temptation's flying down here. You're up there. And above the mark at which sorrow strikes, it lifts yet you higher above even sin, guilt, condemnation, fear, sickness, separation, loneliness, and death, and all the headaches that flesh will inherit. Or as one of the old Puritan commentators has put it, the tower is so deep that no pioneer can undermine it so thick that no cannon can breach it, and so high that no ladder can scale it. The righteous runneth into it, and is perched up there, and can look down like Lear from his cliff, and all the troubles that afflict the lower levels shall show scarce so gross as beetles from the height where he stands, safe and high, hidden in the name of the Lord. I have little to say about the other side. Brothers and sisters, this world in any of its forms the good things of this life in any shape, whether that of money or pleasure or leisure, they can do a great deal for us. They can keep a great many inconveniences from us. They can keep a great many cares and pains and sorrows from us. I was going to say they can keep the rifle bullets from us. But alas, when the big guns get into position and begin to play, when the difficult trials that every life brings, and they will come sooner or later, when they come to open fire at us, then this world, clinging to their cardboard imaginary castle of defense, is like that of a paper helmet, painted as if to be steel, and the castle alongside, and both would do fine as long as nobody bumped into them. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. David. Should such a man as I run away? Nehemiah. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua. I will close with this. This morning, take inventory of where you are uncultivated and unprotected. Look carefully upon your vineyards 
Do not consider yourself to be someone that you are not, and so deceive yourself. Do not be about the business of making hollow bricks. God will not be mocked. If there is a seed that needs sowing, then sow it. Not to your flesh, but to the Spirit. Church, let us not grow weary of doing good or even being set aloft, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, preserved for the work set before us, and ne'er swerving from the truth of his word. I urge you, saints, mortify the sin of slothfulness. Let us pray. Father, we need you, Lord. We have seen this picture in your word of those that have fallen short to keep the vineyard, to allow the plants that you have put there to flourish. They have been choked out. And Lord, it brings discouragement, it brings fear, it brings anxiety. We can look around and weigh our position in light of the position of what's happening around us. And sometimes, Lord, we just do not see. We do not see where you are, what you are doing. But, Lord, this morning, I'm convinced now more than ever that as you call us from slothfulness, you will raise up, you will bond the church and its people together to move forward, to take aim and to take position, Lord, in the strong tower. I pray that idolatry in each of our hearts, Lord, would be weakened and would fall face down. That would fall face down before you, that all might worship you here this morning, that all would go forth with conviction and be compelled to move and to move for you. We thank you, God, that you can accomplish this. We recognize, Lord, that what we are not able to do, you have done. Just go forward with us now, we pray in your name. Amen. Along those lines, uh, there is an epilogue to this. It's not over yet. The uh, Young people, if you listen to this, take heed. For many of us, our vineyards are old and established. Your vineyards are just beginning. Be diligent, be careful, be attentive to what God would have you do. Do not be lazy with your youth. You have time, you have talents. You have abilities. Use it. Do not abdicate your responsibility. Parents, encourage your young people accordingly. Um, In preparing this message, there's a lot of things that cross my mind. Uh, One of them is not, not only to be safe, in the strong tower, but it deserves a further explanation. Um, As one is safe, it's not a position of cowering. Um, I believe that God is calling the church to action, to do things, to band together. Um, 
I've got a list of things. <laughs> I won't necessarily share them with you, and I think a lot of people do in this church. But if any of you feel compelled to talk amongst one another or even myself along the lines of pruning the garden, so to speak, um, do that. Do that among your brothers and sisters because I, let's fortify the church. And uh, yeah, there's, th- there's a lot to be said and done here. But anyway, just, a, just an aside, an epilogue. Um, we're not to cower. We have the armor of God. We are to move forward, to take dominion, to take ground for Christ outside of these four walls. And uh, so I'm here. Um, I stand before you willing and committed. So join together, saints.